real people of God, please stand up. In the Beatitudes, Jesus spells out for us exactly what it looks like to follow him. We are given both a pronouncement of blessing and an invitation to this blessed life. But if one were to live such a life, where would that put you in the big scheme of things? Is this way of following Jesus, is this way of blessedness that's spelled out for us in the Beatitudes, is it some new subset of Judaism? Or is this something entirely new and different altogether? Well, such a question was very pressing in Jesus' day, but probably not so much our own. We understand, for the most part, that while Christianity has its roots in the Old Testament, the personal work of Jesus means there's both continuity and discontinuity with the Old Testament. In Jesus, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. But we do wrestle with questions related to authenticity. What does real Christianity look like? Do I need the church? Do I need the sacraments? Well, as we think about those questions, let's admit at the very outset that such conversations usually have to do with the minimum that is required of us. How little can I be a part of or identify with and still in good conscience incredibly call myself a Christian? Just who are the people of God? Well, as we give attention to this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus giving us clear guidance as to who the people of God are and what their role in the world is to be. And we need to remember as we look to these verses that how we function is tied to our identity. How we function in the world is tied to our identity. Now, it's important to note that uh, as we come to this next session, and I've always sort of struggled with these verses, trying to get my hands around, what are they doing here? After all, Jesus has just got done, uh, he's just finished telling us that we're going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, that others are going to revile you and persecute you, and what's going to happen to you is going to be the same thing that happened to the prophets. Now, any sane person hears that and they go, okay, well, I'll just keep myself to myself. I'll follow Jesus. I'll seek this blessed life that's laid out in the Beatitudes, but I don't really want to rock the boat. I don't want to go out into the culture where the possibility of persecution exists. And Jesus this morning is telling us, no, listen, because of who you are, you cannot help but having an impact on the world. That if we are indeed God's people, our impact and our influence is going to be felt. And he uses then three images as he talks about who we are, not necessarily what we do, but who we are. And it's summed up this way. It's summed up in the big idea for us this morning. Jesus' followers are sent into the world as emissaries of the new covenant. Jesus' followers are sent into the world 
as emissaries of the new covenant. So let's think about those three images that he uses. The first one is salt. Now, I heard, uh, I've heard, as of you, I would guess, and I've actually preached sermons extolling the various and sundry virtues of salt. What does salt do? Well, salt preserves. And so in the same way, Christians, we are to be out in the culture as a preservative uh, in the midst of a world that's rotting and decaying. Salt makes us thirsty, which is good, isn't it? Because Jesus is the one who gives living water. And so as a Christian, your life should be such that you're making others desire Jesus and the gospel. A little bit of salt goes a long way. Salt is no good if it stays in the salt shaker. You have to actually get it on the food or get it in the substance in which you need it. One particular commentator has noted that there are no less than 12 uses or permeations of the salt does this motif that we could track down and talk about. Here's the problem. I don't think Jesus intends for any of those to be the point of this particular passage. But rather, if we understand that the Bible interprets the Bible, then we want to understand how it is that salt gets used or talked about in the Old Testament, particularly understanding that much of the Sermon on the Mount comes out of Isaiah. We want to look there. We want to think there. Well, if you look to the Old Testament, salt occurs most often with reference to the salt sea. So that doesn't particularly help us with this text. But the second most frequent occurrence for salt is in reference to God making a covenant with his people. In fact, it's often called a covenant of salt. Why? Why would salt be associated with covenant? Well, for one reason, it was valuable. And for another reason, uh, just as salt does preserve certain things, so in the covenant, God is preserving God is pledging to preserve those who are in the covenant relationship. So let's understand then, if this is about covenant, let's understand what Jesus is saying to this group of people who have gathered around him as his disciples have come to listen to him speak. What he's saying to them when he says, you are the salt of the earth, what he's telling them is this. You are the new covenant people of God. You are the ones who now have all of the promises that God has given to his people from Genesis 3 onward. It is no longer a question of ethnic identity. Rather, it is a question of how one is related to Jesus himself. This is their identity. This is who they are. They are emissaries of the new covenant that God is making with sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And so since they are emissaries of the new covenant, and since Jesus makes that wonderful statement, we have then in the back end of verse 13, that conjunction, but. But 
If salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? Now, Jesus knew, and we know, that salt doesn't lose its taste. Can't. It can get diluted. It can come to a point where maybe it doesn't taste like salt, but the warning that is given here is a clear warning to those who want to claim to be part of the new covenant people of God. They want to claim to be salt, but in essence, they are not. And so he warns them that if you claim to be part of the new covenant people of God, if you claim to be salty, but you've lost your saltiness, please know that you're good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And you're saying to yourself, Pastor, that sounds really harsh. Why would Jesus say to people who claim his name, who claim to be members of this new covenant people of God, why would he say that to them? Well, keep your finger in Matthew 5, but turn over with me if you would. Go to the very end of your Bible. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2 Beginning in verse 1, now let's let's sort of figure out what's going on here in Revelation so we don't get ourselves in trouble. Uh, John is in exile on the island of Patmos. He has a vision of the resurrected Christ. Christ is standing among seven lampstands, and John tells us that those seven lampstands uh, symbolize the seven churches. So in chapter 2, Verse 1 of the book of Revelation, here's what Jesus says to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Okay, up to this point, we're good, right? They're behaving, they're acting as God's new covenant emissaries ought to act. They're being patient. They can't bear to those who are evil. They are testing those who call themselves who are apostles, but are actually not. Well then, verse 4, we come to that conjunction, but... Listen to Jesus' warning to them and to us and hear the echoes of the warning that he gives in Matthew 5. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, and here's where Jesus' language comes into play from Matthew 5. I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Friends, Jesus is not saying something unloving or harsh or strange in Matthew chapter 5. Rather, he is lovingly and graciously giving his people a warning. If you claim to be salt and yet lose your saltiness, Jesus himself will deal with you. That's what he's telling the church in Ephesus. Unless you repent, 
unless you pursue your first love, I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Now, if we take that that warning of Jesus seriously, the next question that we want to ask is, okay, well, Pastor, uh, time out here for just a moment. We're the new covenant people of God. We're supposed to be salty in that sense. But what would that look like uh, in, in our lives? What, how, how would I know if I'm not being salty anymore? Uh, how would we know if we as a church are not being salty anymore? Well, if, if being salt means that we are the people of the new covenant, and that this identity is tied to covenant, then we have to ask ourselves, are there covenant signs that Jesus has given us to watch over? Are there covenant signs that Jesus has given us uh, to use for our benefit and to help distinguish those who are part of the new covenant people from those who are not? And the answer, of course, is yes. They're called sacraments. And so one of the ways that we show and we display our identity as the new covenant people of God is we practice and we make use of the two sacraments that God has given us, baptism and the Lord's Supper. You'll note that in each of those instances, baptism and the Lord's Supper distinguishes. It separates. It makes a distinction between those who are, to use Jesus' terms in Matthew 5, those who are salt and those who are not. And so each and every week when we fence the table before we come and participate in the Lord's Supper, we are seeking to, in a way that is obedient to God and obedient to his word, we're seeking to safeguard our identity as those who are the new covenant people of God. We are salt. And who we are then has implications for what we do. We are salt, and so we fence the table. We are salt, and so we ask and we require baptism, something that distinguishes between salt and not salt. But we're not just salt. Jesus also says that we are light, verse 14. You are the light of the world. Now, that's an amazing statement because we know, as we read through the rest of the New Testament, that the light of the world is actually Jesus himself. And yet he tells us, as his disciples, as his followers, that we are the light of the world. Now, let's pause there for just a second because it's, it's, what's going on is, is stunning. Jesus is basically taking everything that everybody thought they knew about the people of God, and he's turning it on its head. He's completely, he's, he's taking the whole thing, and he's completely redoing it. Because you'll note in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, that it's, it's his disciples who are there with him. 
It's not the scribes. It's not the Pharisees. It's not the religious or cultural elite. It's not the people who you'd said, hey, who are the people of God in Israel back in Jesus' day? They would have pointed to these people. They would not have pointed to Jesus' disciples. And so if you were to say, hey, who's the light? I will guarantee you it would not have been that ragamuffin, scraggly crew that was up on top of the mountain listening to Jesus speak. And yet Jesus tells them and he tells us that we are the light of the world. Now, as we read through the rest of the New Testament, that idea of light and world and uh, the opposite idea of darkness, we begin yet, uh, we get one more way to understand why Jesus makes the promise that his people will be persecuted. John tells us that darkness hates light. It can't abide by it. And we have seen and we have learned over and over and over in the history of God's people, we have seen that when the light pushes against the darkness, when the light shines against the darkness, the darkness does everything that it can to quench the light. There is profit to be made in darkness. And when the light starts going into the cracks and crevices, when the light starts showing up in the corners and the profitable dark places are being chased back, the darkness fights back. There's that wonderful story in the book of Acts. Paul and Silas are going through a town, and there's a, a young woman who's uh, she's a she's a fortune teller. She's actually possessed by a demon, but she can tell people their fortunes. And so uh, they're walking through the city, and this young woman is following them, is screaming, uh, "These men are servants of the Most High God." Not really the way you want to get introduced into a city. And uh, so they, after a time, and, and I love Acts, just says after a while, Paul got tired of it. So he turns around and commands the demon to come out of the girl. And sure enough, the demon comes out of the girl. And you think, oh, it's great. That's wonderful, right? Here's this poor demon-possessed woman who's uh, been, you know, basically been trafficked. And now, now she's free and she's liberated. And, and isn't it great? Won't the whole city be really glad that these, this annoying demon-possessed girl is not there anymore to tell them their fortunes? But Luke records for us in Acts that the girl's owner who was making a lot of money becomes quite upset with what it is that Paul and Silas had done. He has them arrested. He has them beaten. He has them thrown into prison. Think about the life of William Wilberforce, who the first time Wilberforce stood up in the House of Commons and offered his uh, abolitionist uh, uh, piece of legislation, uh, he was literally physically beaten. For years, the man 
For years, he received death threats. And then if you've read the book or if you've seen the movie, you know that on the day in which the abolitionist legislation finally passed, the House of Commons stood and applauded him. You are the light of the world. And friends, darkness hates the light. Which is why God promises us Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you on my account. We are light, and light hates darkness. But it's interesting, isn't it? We're not just light individually. We're also light corporately. There's this kind of community of light. Look at verse the second half of verse 14. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Going, okay, great. A city set on a hill. We get it. Uh, there, weren't, uh, there wasn't a lot of ambient light in that day and time. So anything uh, that's lit up at night without street lights and without the reflection of big cities and all that, it's really going to shine. But that city on a hill, any Jew would have understood that's Jerusalem. That's the holy city. That's the place where God himself resides. Much like if we said, hey, uh, where were you going this weekend? I went to go see a ball game in the Windy City. Well, that's Chicago. If you've been to other places, you know the wind blows there too. But the Windy City is Chicago. Likewise, a city set on a hill. Well, that's Jerusalem. So here's what Jesus is declaring. Here's what he's telling this ragamuffin group of people who are sitting up on the mountainside listening to him speak. Hey, you, you're the new Jerusalem. You're my new city. And Abby read for us what's going to happen in that new city when she read our Old Testament reading for us this morning. Nations shall come to see your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. You shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and shall be exalted. All will come and God says, I will beautify my beautiful house. God's presence and God's place is now with his people. It's not in Jerusalem in the temple. It's not in Jerusalem in the Holy of Holies. Jesus is saying, no, you are the city set on a hill. You are my Jerusalem. You are the place that I dwell. You are the place in which my presence is going to be seen and felt. That gives this ragtag group of people up on a mountain listening to Jesus speak an entirely new identity. They're not just the poor and marginalized and displaced. They're not just a tax collector and some fishermen and some other guys. We don't really know what they did. No, they are the new city of God. They are the new 
Jerusalem. They are the one in whom God dwells. They are God's place. That is where his presence is felt. That is where his place, that is where God resides. It's now with his people. And that is their identity. They're not nobodies. They're not fishermen. They're not tax collectors. No, they are, they are the new Jerusalem. They are God's city. They are the place in which God himself dwells. So Jesus then points out the obvious. Don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. But what do you do? You put it on a stand. It's stunning, isn't it? Because he's, he's just affirmed for us in verse 14, hey, darkness hates the light. And he's already told them that they're going to go in the world. And they're going to be persecuted. And again, our, our natural inclination is to go, okay, if that's true, I don't really like persecution. And I don't really like being reviled. And I know what they did to the prophets. And I don't want them to do it to me. And Jesus says, no, listen, that's not the deal. The deal is let your light shine before others. Because, yes, there are some who will persecute you, and there are some who will revile you. But look at what he says at the end of verse 16. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Yes, there will be some who will persecute you, and there are some who will revile you. But there are some who will see what you are doing, and they will give your Father glory. The means by which you're going to call a world lost in darkness to the light is that they're going to see it. Yes, some of them will persecute you. Some of them will revile you. And you will get treated as the prophets did. But guess what? Some will be drawn to the light. And when they are, they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are light, and we are the city that is on the hill. God dwells with his people. God dwells within his church. It is where his presence and his place is felt. And when God's people lives as they are called to live, and when we, in essence, when we begin to become who we already are, Yes, it will bring persecution. But there are also those who will give glory to our Father who is in heaven. As we come to the table this morning, one of the things that I think we forget is that uh, in, in the sacraments, it's God who's speaking to us. And so this morning... At the table, God is declaring to you, Christian, who you are. God is telling you that you are the recipient of the new covenant. That he is your God and you are his child. And that the price of that was the broken body and the shed blood of his son, the Lord Jesus you see, the table confirms to us our identity. The table tells us 
that because we are God's people, we are salt. And because we are God's people, we are light. And because we are God's people, God's presence and place is now with us. And so this morning we come. We come not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but we come because in Christ, God has given us a new and different identity. Like that ragtag group of people who were sitting up on top of the mountain listening to Jesus speak. We are the blessed ones. We are the ones who will see the kingdom of heaven. We are the ones who will receive God's comfort. We are the ones who will receive mercy. We are the ones who will see God. We are the ones who are called the sons and daughters of God. And we are the ones who are the emissaries of his new covenant. And so this morning, our God reminds us of who we are in Christ as we come to his table. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your graciousness. Thank you for the way in which you call us to yourself. And Lord, we bless you for our new identity. Uh, that's a really loaded term. And, and we understand we live in a day and age in which everybody's all hot and bothered about their identity. Uh, so Lord, thank you. Uh, that you declare, that you speak over us an identity that doesn't have anything to do with my likes, dislikes, or, or whatever it is I think I'm wired to at the moment. But that as my creator, you speak over us, as our creator, you speak over us this word of identity. And we bless you for it. And Father, we pray uh, that we would more and more become who we already are. We are salt, we are light, we are a city on a hill. And we pray that by your grace, we would, uh, we would become more and more those things. For we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.